Welcome to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Ann Fisher. Texting has been around for more than three decades, revolutionizing the idea of communication with the use of acronyms, slang, and emojis. The impact on our work and our social lives has been profound. But could there be a downside? A recent study suggests that the good old-fashioned phone call helps us form better relationships and improve psychological health. Amrit Kumar is an assistant professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. He co-authored the study showing the link between calling and psychological health. Welcome to All Sides. Thanks very much for having me. You know, as so- as somebody who grew up hanging on the phone at all odd hours of the night with my parents yelling at me to get off that expletive thing, uh, it's going to ruin you. Um, I feel a lot better. <laughs> so well, maybe you were on to something. <laughs> exactly. I mean, um, the bottom line is, I suppose, if it's if it's texting versus calling versus being in person, um, there's that too. But you just looked at texting versus calling. Why? Uh, So part of this, uh, you can think about it in the context of the things that we've been experiencing over the past few years where we have to interact with people at a distance and we have choices, uh, thankfully, about how to do that, even when we're not with the people that we want to interact with. Um, We have to, we have ways, modern technology gives us these ways to connect with others, um, but they might not all strengthen social connection equally. And that's what we were interested in exploring in, uh, in this work. What, how did you do the study? How did that work? So we actually conducted a series of experiments. Um, Some of them uh, had to do with uh, sort of the different types of people that you might interact with. Um, So when you're reconnecting with an old friend, for instance, or when you're first uh, getting to know someone, um, so meeting someone for the first time and talking to them in different ways. Um, So there's there's lots of experiments that we did. Uh, The basic setup to them, uh, though, involves people um, giving us their expectations about how they'll think, how they think they'll feel when they interact um, via text or when communicating using their voice, um, sometimes telling us sort of which they prefer, which they'd rather do, what their choices are. Um, but then as experimenters, actually kind of assigning them in experiments to, to do one of these things and then finding out how they actually feel. And it turns out that our expectations aren't always accurate. They're not always in line with our actual experiences when interacting with others. Can you give me an example of how they felt and how they expected to feel? Yeah, for sure. So in in one experiment, for example, um, we had participants reconnect with someone that they hadn't interacted with in uh, a couple of years. Um, So we have them make these predictions uh, about what it would be like to get uh, back in touch with this person from their past if they reached out to them either by sending them an email, so through text, or by calling them up on the phone uh, using their voice. Um, They make uh, predictions about how connected and uh, importantly, as we might get to, how awkward they'd feel uh, when reconnecting um, using their voice and when using text. Um, When it comes to these expectations, um, people sometimes have a sense that they might feel more connected when they can hear someone, when they can speak to someone than when they're interacting over email. But they also think that talking on the phone would be a lot more uncomfortable than interacting over email, that maybe it's uh, a little bit more awkward. Uh, And that tends to influence their choices. So when we ask them what they prefer to do, um, most people say they'd rather type instead of talk. Um, So that's what the majority of our participants in this experiment did. And in fact, um, when you you do these sort of statistical analyses that researchers do, it's differences in these expectations about awkwardness that tend to drive um, choices here. 
But then when it comes to actual experience, which I think is probably most important for people's everyday lives, um, which we could test in an experiment like this, uh, people formed significantly stronger bonds um, when they were interacting over the phone than over email. Um, and there actually wasn't any difference in how awkward these two forms of reconnecting were in reality, um, suggesting that when you're actually reconnecting, you have a more positive uh, and a less negative experience than you expect uh, when you're talking to someone rather than uh, just using your fingers to communicate with someone. You're listening to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Ann Fisher, and we're talking about texting versus talking and uh, why it, talking can be better for your emotional well-being than texting. My guest is Amrit Kumar. He's an assistant professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. He co-authored the study showing this link between calling and psychological health. I mean, has calling declined in recent? We know it's declined. Um, I assume it's declined because there's options. Uh, so it was interesting during the pandemic, it seems like voice-based interactions actually started increasing again uh, as people were seeking out connection. Um, but uh, of course, uh, you know, using text, communicating over social media, those things have become increasingly popular. We have lots of options. Um, and uh, I think when we're making these decisions, sometimes we think that the way in which we interact might not matter, or sometimes we're thinking some things will matter, like that we might feel uncomfortable when actually we might be mistaken in those expectations. It's perfectly reasonable to make decisions based on your expectations of you know, costs and benefits. All interactions come with some costs and benefits, but when our expectations are sort of misguided or miscalibrated in, in a sense, um, that might lead us to choose some options that, that, that might not yield a stronger sense of social connection. Does the anxiety about calling speak to a broader societal trend? Ah, so that's not something we can look at in our research because we're not kind of tracking people over time. We're, we're doing experiments. So these are kind of one-off uh, interactions. Um, I do think that these misplaced fears are actually um, pretty broad in a sense that often we're worried about things that we don't need to worry about, especially when it comes to connections with others. Um, humans are a, a, a fundamentally social species. We have this fundamental need to belong. Um, I study happiness and like the thing that social scientists know to be essential to well-being is positive connections with others. And so most of these interactions tend to go better than we expect. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, along a continuum of communication options, obviously you and I are on Zoom right now, that has turned out to be a really great option uh, for me instead of being on the phone with people all the time interviewing them. How about you? I mean, is are, it was have you thought about adding kind of that middle of the road? I can see your face and I can see how you if you're rolling your eyes at or not. <laughs> uh, hopefully that's not what I was doing, yeah. but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but we actually tested this in another experiment as well. So we have data to speak to this rather than just, you know, my own experience, which I think is especially informative. And so this was an experiment where we had strangers, um, uh, so people that didn't know each other rather than old friends connect with each other. Um, they were asking and answering sort of a series of questions, kind of getting to, to know each other. And they did this either by, and this was all in real time. So it's kind of during texting in a live chat or using only audio, um, which uh, you know people listening to us right now can only hear us or over a video chat. Uh, I can see you and you can see me. 
Um, and again, we had participants make predictions about how they'd expect to feel. And then they actually went through this conversation with someone else. And we, again, measured these feelings of awkwardness and connection. And um, we had lots of measures of connection. So uh, how much did you feel like you got to know this person? How much would you, uh, would you like them? How much did you like them afterwards? How strong of a bond would you feel? Um, and uh, a couple things happened. So uh, again, um, people significantly overestimated uh, the awkwardness of these interactions, uh, kind of across uh, conditions. But the difference between their predictions and their actual experiences was bigger in the voice and the video conditions than in the text conditions. So that kind of suggests that um, connecting with our voices can create a surprisingly strong bond with another person. We don't realize what our voice is adding. And I do actually think that voice component is especially important. Um, so it turned out that these visual cues um, that you were referring to actually didn't add much beyond what the voice uh, added over text-based media um, with regards to facilitating these feelings of connection. So, so sort of communicating with just audio, like a phone call or a voice chat or listening to, uh, to someone like your listeners are doing now, they can create, uh, those interactions can create just as strong a sense of social connection, it turns out, as audio-visual media. It's not that video does something negative or anything like that. Both are better than text-based media, but uh, the, the positive outcomes seem to be similar. Um, and so we think that it's, it's really the human voice that's adding those feelings of connection to these uh, these interactions. I'm kind of curious, and I don't know if you've asked this question, so I'm just kind of throwing it out there, but, you know, the anxiety and the depression among younger people now, mostly, basically, they're digital natives. That's They've grown up with texting. Um, they don't remember a time when there was an option, uh, when there wasn't an option, I should say. Um, and they are, I would imagine, the younger you get, the more people tend to think that, in-person video uh, or by voice might be more awkward because they just don't do it as much. Yeah, we didn't find age effects in uh, in our data. Of course, we don't have really young, uh, you know, we don't have teenagers because everyone was over 18 to their consent to participating in our uh, experiment. We don't have uh, very, very old participants, but we do have sort of this range of people from, you know, a lot of our participants are actually college students. So maybe they're um, some of the people that you're referring to, um, so we don't see, this seems to be a pretty uh, general effect. It applies to people in their, um, at least the people that we measured that are 18 and the people that were, um, you know, in their 20s or 30s or 40s. Um, I do think that this connection to sort of mental uh, health is really important though. We need these social connections. And it turns out that that these, uh, these feelings of connectedness are important for actually both mental and physical health, which are related to each other. So our mental well-being, um, you know, over the past few years, we've heard a lot from epidemiologists and important uh, important uh, uh, outcomes that they've been talking about, but they've been around for a long time and they've been studying um, uh, health outcomes um, since before the pandemic. It turns out that a lack of social support can be as big a risk factor for um, morbidity and mortality as uh, really damaging things like smoking cigarettes and air pollution, uh, even worse than air pollution, it, it, it turns out, uh, or obesity, these problems that we care a lot about, and I think that we should care a lot about. Um, but that suggests that these types of interactions with others are things we need to be caring more about as a society as well. And so just because these choices exist, just because it's easy to make decisions given the options that we have, doesn't mean that we're going about our lives and 
perhaps the most optimal way. So hypothetically, again, if I have a friend in pain, maybe he's lost someone is going through something, grieving something, I might say, oh, I'll just shoot her a text and let her know I'm thinking about her. Maybe think twice and pick up the phone and call her. Yeah, and it's certainly not that there's no use for texting. I mean, sure. you know, it's useful to, you can send a text to say, hey, let's schedule a time to talk. And, you know, that is an effective way to communicate with someone. But when it comes, if you're really trying to feel connected to a person, if you're really trying to express that you care about them or that you uh, are a thoughtful human being, things like that, um, that's going to be, it might be wiser to connect um, using your voice than than using text alone. Well, uh, Amrit Kumar, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was great to chat. You too. Amrit Kumar is an assistant professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Austin. I mean, sorry, University of Texas at Austin. He co-authored the study that we're talking about that shows this link between calling and psychological health. We have more Tech Tuesday coming up, so stay with us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. Race might be a hot topic right now, but for so many of us, talking about race is nothing new. On the Code Switch podcast from NPR, we go beyond the headlines and we go deep. Listen now. Welcome back to Tech Tuesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Dan Fisher. New cars have new bells and whistles, high-tech features to improve driver safety and convenience. Some are smart upgrades, others maybe not so much. Keith Beery writes about cars and the auto industry for Consumer Reports. His recent articles about the spring models appear in the February issue. Welcome to the show, Keith. Thanks for having me back. Okay, so latest bells and whistles include a smartphone app that can start your car and lend a virtual key to another driver. And we kind of tossed this around the group yesterday. People are like, the virtual key sounds wonderful. I'm frantic. It sounds kind of dangerous to me. <laughs> Someone <laughs> could hack your key. Yeah, I mean, I mean, these are things, but there's a, there is a lot of security there, and, and you'd have to kind of know the person you're looking for. So it, it, it sort of depends if you have someone who's out to get you or not, <laughs> really is is what the security researchers I've talked to have, have said about this. But, but the convenience aspect that's kind of nice is that you don't have to worry about putting the key under the mat or hanging it in the entryway so everyone can have it. Um, if you want, you know, your kid to borrow your car and Sometimes you can even put limits on it, you know, get it back to me before 10 o'clock, which is something which is kind of nice, too. So, you know, there are pros and cons with even within some of these new bells and whistles, uh, there are pros and cons with them. So there's control then Uh, you could send your kid out and say, get back before 10 or what the the it turns into a pumpkin. Uh, well, virtually, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> your, your kid would have to get home. Uh, you know, Ford has some features where you can actually see where 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 the car is. Uh, it's called My Key, and that's kind of an interesting feature. But but really, the this is just kind of an extension of having your phone 
become a part of your car. You know, at first we saw it with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto where, where your apps end up on the screen in your car. And now it's one fewer thing to carry in your pocket. Uh, you know, if you have a, a, a phone that can start your car, um, it's, you don't have to carry that key fob. Now, if, you're, if your phone dies, then <laughs> that's also an issue you have to worry about. But, um, you know, it, it is something which can be helpful. You know, you run to the gym or something. You don't have to worry about where you're putting your keys. You only have one thing to carry with you. Um, there are something called intuitive high beam lights. And I really like that idea that you don't have to switch them on. Yeah, that's one of the most popular features uh, that our members talk about and that we love at CR. Uh, and this is something which automatically switches between high beams and low beams while you're driving. So I'm sure everyone's been on the road and someone's been driving at you with their high beams on and you, you flash your lights at them and you know you can't see. Um, but this is, a, this is a great feature for drivers and for other drivers. This helps the person behind the wheel and everyone else behind the wheel. Um, because it'll add a ton of illumination with those high beams on, but then it'll turn them off uh, when you're driving towards other vehicles. And in a lot of cars, this feature works works really great. Uh, and it's and it is common even on less expensive cars these days. I just love Consumer Reports. You guys buy about 40 new vehicles every year for your auto testers to try out for a few months. I mean, you don't borrow, you buy. Uh, what have you been driving? Oh boy. Um, I, you know, so I actually just got an electric car charger installed at my own house. So I've been trying to cycle through all the electric cars that we've had in the fleet and spend a little more time with them. Uh, and also right now I'm, I'm an undercover buyer myself that there's a dealership somewhere in new England. That's going to get a phone call from, uh, from me looking for a car to purchase for our test program. And, and they won't know that we're buying it for, uh, for consumer reports. We, we have to go through the same rigmarole, just like everybody else. Did you have trouble getting enough cars? There was a while where <laughs> there was actually a while where uh, we kind of once again we we had to pay those markups. There were we had to wait for the cars to come in. We'd expect a car to come in and we'd get a phone call from the dealer uh, and say, "Ah, oh, it's on a truck. Oh, it hasn't made it here. Oh, it's missing something." But a, a lot of that has subsided, uh, which which is which is nice. And we're starting to see a lot of new cars come into to our fleet, just as as dealerships are starting to see them come back to the to their lots. Um, another thing I love, the Nissan Rogue has a feature to guard against, um, uh, which is overfilling tires, because I hate to fill up the tires because I'm so stressed out about blowing them up. And this, <laughs> tell us about this feature. It makes me think of, you know, there's, it's going around social media, there's this photo with a showing, you know, the tire pressure gauge up to 99. And the caption is, I tried to fill it to 100, but it just won't fill up. And that, <laughs> that's real bad. Um, so, uh, you know, everyone hates getting down on the ground with a tire pressure gauge. And, you know, you're, you're putting quarters into the machine and behind the gas station. Uh, and, and proper tire inflation is really, really, really important. It's, it's important for tire wear. It's important for fuel economy, for safety, for road handling and grip. Um, and you know, as the seasons change, as it gets colder out, you're going to have to go and put a little more, uh, air into your tires. Uh, Nissan GM, uh, some Jeep vehicles have this cool feature where it'll beep the horn when the tires reach the proper uh, inflation. And I just think that's so cool. It's really simple. It's using these sensors that are already in, in, in the tires 
and it's going to tell you uh, through something that's already based in the car. It's not some fancy new technology someone had to develop. It's just connecting the horn with a sensor that's already there and making life easier. So I love these features that just kind of uh, that take something we all hate to do and might not do because we hate to do it and make it easier. You're listening to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Ann Fisher, and we're talking about all the new bells and whistles on new cars. These are not bells and whistles. If you if there are, they're high-tech bells and whistles. My guest is Keith Berry. He writes about cars and the auto industry for Consumer Reports. His recent articles about the spring models appear in the February issue of the, of the magazine, so check that out. Um, how do car designers decide what to prioritize when it comes to these upgrades oh that's a really interesting one you know we we meet with manufacturers and, and talk to them and learn about what they've decided and, and a lot of it comes from what uh you know what what people are telling them they want sometimes it's an idea and it goes through focus groups sometimes it's cost cutting you know one of the reasons why touch screens are more common in cars is because if you already have that touchscreen, it's a lot cheaper to put more buttons on it than to install more physical buttons. But sometimes features beget other features. So if you go back to that touchscreen, uh, nowadays there are cars that you can upgrade through a software update, just like you'd upgrade your phone or, or your computer, and it can add new features to your car. You can't add a physical button to a, a car. Well, I mean, you can. It would look terrible. Uh, <laughs> I had a car like that in the 90s. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, <laughs> when but, we put the, the, the tape decks in. Exactly. Or the engine immobilizer <laughs> or whatever. Right, it looked right. awful. You had to drill a hole in the side of the dashboard. Now you download those buttons to your car. And that's kind of a cool feature. Um, so sometimes one feature will open the door for other things to happen and someone somewhere will say, Hey, wouldn't this be cool? And most of the time, if people like it, it ends up sort of, uh, going across a model line. If it's something that starts out in a luxury car and then you'll start to see it in, in your more affordable cars, uh, as well. So, uh, if, you know, if you can dream it, they can do it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the Hyundai, uh, Elantra 2023, um, looks pretty fancy. It's only starts at $20,500. Yeah. And you know, you're not going to get all those features on a $20,000 car, but you don't have to spend too much to get things like, you know, Apple CarPlay or, uh, Android auto. And that means you plug in your phone and you get navigation. Remember, three or four or five years ago, getting navigation was a $1,200 or $3,000 option on a luxury car. Nowadays, you just have to plug in that phone that's already in your pocket. Uh, and sometimes you don't even have to plug it in. And it'll show up on that screen. And, um, and you'll have this really cool feature that's always updated and always there. And, you know, that's what I like to see is when, and that's what we like to see at Consumer Reports, is when there's a feature that becomes um sort of more available to everyone and it isn't something that makes the car harder to use or more expensive it's something that's that's that people have been asking for that's easy to use and not that expensive i wonder if that's going to affect how long people keep their cars going forward if they can amend it by downloading new software Absolutely. I mean, that's something that 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 car deal car dealerships have been kind of you know trying to figure out how they're going to deal with that with people bringing back their cars for uh, you know repairs ten years down the road, supporting that software. 
Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a finite amount of time that that the physical components of a vehicle can can last before it becomes you know economically unviable to 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 replace. Uh, but you are going to be able to get kind of new car features. And believe me, down the road, you might have to pay for some of those features. Uh, you know, this isn't going to be out of the kindness of the hearts of, of an automaker that you'll be able to download something new all the time. Um, but yeah, it does, it does mean that a car can feel fresh, even if it isn't brand new. The new gear shifts are different. The Nissan Pathfinder has an, a too intuitive one, and I'm wondering... How does that work? What do you mean intuitive gear shift? Is this in a manual yeah. or is it an automatic or what? So unfortunately, the days of the manual transmission for someone like me who really, really enjoys them, they're, they're basically only in low volume, uh, kind of lightweight sports cars. You're not going to find uh, a stick shift in most cars. But what right. you are going to find are these are push button transmissions, which was new in the 50s, uh, and they're back. Um, you're going to find transmissions that uh, you're going to find gear shifters that um, what we call a monostable shifter. If you're in a car and you you kind of it, it always returns the, the shifter returns back to its first position, almost like a joystick. Uh, you're going to find that you're going to find these kind of push me pull you type things where you press one button, you pull back on the other button to go in a different gear. Um, these sometimes people uh, can get into a car for the first time and immediately figure it out. I mean, for years, it was what we, what was folks in the auto industry called the prundle. And you can imagine why it's called that park, reverse, neutral, <laughs> drive, neutral. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the shifter was the same in almost every car. Um, and nowadays it's going to be different depending upon the car you get in. Um, that. I think, and we think at Consumer Reports, can be a bit confusing, especially if you're getting into a rental car, especially if you're borrowing someone's car, if you have two cars in your household. Um, something like getting the car into drive and then putting it into park, that should be one of the most fundamentally easy things about, about driving a car. You should be able to do that with your, you know, not looking down at the shifter. And that's not always the case on modern cars. So some of these are a bit of a step backwards. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's constantly confused by just how you pay in a grocery store because every single one is different, uh, yeah. Um, how are they starting to design features using gaming feature? I mean, things, how gaming features have played a role in this? Well, that's an interesting one. Um, so, you know, this is kind of... Uh, you know, I was born in the 80s and I grew up with computers. They weren't nearly the type of computers that we're on today, but I'm used to looking in menus. I'm looking, you know, things being on screens. I'm looking, I'm used to, you know, uh, having a mouse, eventually having a touch screen. And the people who are designing cars nowadays, a lot of them are digital natives. They grew up with this stuff and people buying cars grew up with this stuff or at least got into it early in life. And I think people are starting to look at uh, the the programs they use, the games they played with when they were younger, and then starting to put some of those features into cars. Uh, we're starting to see the first generation of race car drivers that started racing in esports games and e racing on you know doing a, a you know doing it at home virtually, and then using those skills, honing those skills before they were even old enough to have a license and being able to get out there on an F1 track. And that's amazing. So of course, these things are going to translate. Um, you know, you go into Gran Turismo and you, and you select uh, what you want on your car and they're starting to make the screens 
on a vehicle, inside a vehicle, uh, to, to change the options in a vehicle the same way. Um, it's inspiration from just another place. Uh, it isn't, you know, we had the jet age inspiring cars, we had fuel efficiency inspiring cars, aerodynamics, and now it's the virtual world is inspiring the real world. Uh, can you give me an example of how that's manifesting? Absolutely. So I, I think one, one of the things I, I, I mentioned uh, is so, you know, you sit down in a car nowadays and instead of just the, um, the speedometer and the tachometer there, there's usually a screen and you can go into that screen and customize your vehicle through menus. And uh, the way that you, you'll sometimes have a picture of a little car right there. It, it looks like the car you're driving and you can decide whether all the doors unlock or some of the doors unlock when you press the unlock button. You can decide uh, you know, whether you want it in sport mode. And these are things that uh, kind of mimic the way that you would customize a virtual car in a video game. Now, obviously you're not gonna be able to change the car while you're driving if you get enough points or change the color <laughs> or anything like that. But, you know, it, it kind of has that feel to it um, of being able to customize things through buttons and menus and on a screen uh, and bringing that into the real world. Um, you know, you were talking about how some people might have difficulty with newer features, you know, that the getting in the car and starting it and putting it into drive ought to be the simplest thing ever. And salespeople like typically to equate the number of features a car has with how luxurious it is, you use a little bit different measure, and that is driver stress. Tell me about that. Yeah, so it's funny. There's this sort of um, situation where we, we hear from our members sometimes where they'll go out and buy this fancy car. They'll finally be at a place in their life where they can spend money on a car that they that's really comfortable, that they like, that has some has some luxury to it. And they get in it and a car, a luxury car is supposed to help you relax. You're supposed to get into it and just feel the sense of, ah, and instead you have uh, sometimes the most expensive cars can have the hardest to use features and they can have screens that stretch across the entire dashboard and can be very difficult to use. That's to, to us, that is that is not relaxing, that is not luxury, that's not being pampered, that's having to learn a new operating system. Uh, you're already in front of a computer probably all day at work or you know at home or you're on your phone and you don't want that when you're in your car. Not only is it frustrating, can, but it also can be distracting when you're behind the wheel. So for us, a car that, that sort of gets out of the way and lets you concentrate on the task of driving and then has safety features that'll help you with that task of driving and you know crash avoidance features like automatic emergency braking and blind spot warning and things. Those features are awesome, but something that's just you know a giant touchscreen across the entire car where you have to root through a menu to figure out, you know, uh, where the vents are blowing. That, to, to me and, and to a lot of us at Consumer Reports, our, our human factors engineers and, and the designers we talk to, that isn't necessarily making the car better. It's making it more stressful to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I like it that I can still push a button for my, um, oh, what do you call it, where you've, you know, the... the the warmth on the window and on your rearview mirrors. Oh, exactly. The, yes. Yeah. The defrosters. The defrosters. Yes. Thank you. I'm grasping for words today. Yeah, the defrosters. Um, I don't want to have to look for that. 
No, that's funny. That that's one of the only features that has to be on a physical button. There there are very few rules, uh, federal safety oh, really? rules about how okay. the interior of a car can be designed. That's actually one of them. That there there has to be some sort of a you know a button that you can press there. But things like you know, adjusting the vents, adjusting the temperature, uh, some of those, you now have to go into screens in order to change. And, you know, you get used to it. But I, I think the main problem, especially for, for folks in the snow belt like us, um, roads have potholes and you're driving down a bumpy road and you're trying to point at the exact perfect spot on a touchscreen while you're driving and you might hit a bump, your hand might move and you'll end up listening to a different radio station right. instead of turning on the heated seats. Right. Uh, and, and you know, it could be easier. The physical buttons and controls, there's, you know, they may look a little old fashioned. They might not look as sleek, but there's a reason why they've been in cars for so many, for so many years. I think one of my favorite interviews ever was with, the guy, I don't can't remember which car, one of the big three or former big three, whatever. Um, <laughs> he he was kind of in charge of the future of automobiles. You know, what, you know, 30, 40 years down the road or maybe 10 or 20 years because everything's happening so fast right now. What, yeah. what do you hear about that's coming that might startle us? You know, I, I think one of the most interesting things that I've seen, and, and Mercedes has kind of done this and, and Volvo's kind of done this, is that car companies are actually handing over some of the some of the tech in their cars to to the companies that do it best. So no matter how good you know any car company is at building software, Google, Apple, those folks are going to do a better job. So there's a reason why now companies are hiring. You know they're they're basically putting an operating system in their car that is based on Android OS. Um, which is kind of interesting. So you have the people who have already created this, this system, putting it inside cars and car companies are licensing these, um, these, these features, this software from software companies. They're not trying to do it in-house. Um, and, and I think that's going to be something that's, it's a small thing, but it's going to be a big change because you're going to get into a car and it's, it's going to look more familiar. Um, you know, the, the features are going to be like the features you're used to using on your computer at home, on your tablet, on your phone. Um, and, and some of that is a good thing because you don't want to have to learn a new software program just to drive your car. I think that's something I think also talking about this idea of, um, eventually upgrading cars while you're driving them. I think eventually, uh, you know, some car companies have talked about doing this. They've talked about charging people. Um, if they want to add a feature to their car later down the road, you can do that, but it'll cost you. And I think that that'll be surprising for people. They're used to owning their car. You go and you check off something on a build sheet and the car has it. It's on the window sticker. It's in there. No one's going to come and, you know, pull the, the tape deck out of your, you know, 85 Honda Civic. But someone might take away some features on a car in the future if you don't pay a subscription for it. So I think that's a feature that's really going to surprise people uh, not always in the best way when it comes to the, the future of automotive technology. Granted, everything eventually wears out, but do you see the advent now that we're now in of electric cars uh, further changing the calculus on how long we keep them? Because we don't have engines wearing out, you know, the thing that drives the car. Maybe the upholstery Absolutely. won't last, but yeah. the engine, you know, that's not an issue anymore. 
Absolutely. There are things that do wear out in electric cars. And one of the issues is there just haven't been enough on the road to get the sense of, of how long things like batteries last and the electric drivetrains last. We have seen with hybrids that people, when hybrids first came out, which have a, a big battery, but also a gas engine, people said, oh, they'll never last. The batteries will die after a short period of time. But we hear from, from members who have had you know, early Toyota Priuses, 2004, 2005, with 200, 300, 400, 500,000 miles on them. They're being used as taxis, as Ubers, and racking up the miles. And sure, the mileage might, might go down over time, but those batteries do last. And I think it, it's a bit of a wait and see now with electric cars to figure out how long those components will last. But you're right. You know, there is still a suspension, but there isn't a fuel system. Uh, you know, you still have to change the tires, but you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, a catalytic converter. So there are, there, are, there are aspects of the vehicle that are getting simpler as they become more electrified. And also the amount of power you have on board. Um, it's not just, you know, what you can run off the alternator. It's the car has the ability to power more things on board, more features. And that's going to be interesting, too. So I think people are looking at cars now as sort of a technological platform moving forward. Um, and, and that's going to that's going to increase with with EVs. You're absolutely right about that. Keith Berry, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Me too. Keith Beery writes about cars and the auto industry for Consumer Reports. His recent articles about the spring models appear in the February issue. We'll have a link to that at WOSU.org slash All Sides. We have a little bit more Tech Tuesday coming up, so stay with us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. Race might be a hot topic right now, but for so many of us, talking about race is nothing new. On the Code Switch podcast from NPR, we go beyond the headlines and we go deep. Listen now. Welcome back to Tech Tuesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. When it comes to the latest phone technology, how's this for a futuristic concept? A phone screen that unrolls. It's a new innovation for Motorola. Here to explain it all is Russell Holly, Managing Editor for Commerce at CNET. Welcome back, Russell. Thank you. I, I can't even visualize this. So paint a picture. That, there's me. a handy video. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> paint a picture for our radio audience. So you've got uh, you know, a, a fairly uh, small looking phone in your hand and you just got an email that's got a whole bunch of text to it. You've decided that you you need a larger screen in order to like really appreciate everything that's going on on the screen. You double tap a button on the side of the phone and your phone actually grows. It gets longer to the size of, let's say, slightly longer than the current phone that you own. And, uh, and it allows you to, you know, kind of take all of that in. And when you're done, you can just tap that button again and the screen gets smaller and it fits nicer in your pocket. Um, where Where's the screen coming from? Is it like a two screens? I don't get it. No, it's a single screen that is inside the phone. The phone, you know, the your your screen just sort of goes down. And then when it gets to that like bezel at the end, it actually rolls up inside of your phone. The screen itself is a flexible piece of material that is that is curled up on a on a 
uh, on a cylinder on the inside of your phone. How does this work? How do they do that? Yeah, so flexible screens have been something that have been um, tested across a whole bunch of different industries for a while now, and they've they've slowly gotten better with time. You have seen versions of this with phones that fold in half. Um, what it's basically happening there is is that flexible display uh, has gotten durable enough uh, that instead of just worrying about it folding one way a whole bunch of times, it can actually be uh, rolled up. Um, in in a way that, according to the people who are are currently uh, running this uh, test, have uh, it, like does less damage to that screen over time because folding something in half versus rolling it up, uh, you know, there's there's kind of less damage to the to the bits that make up the screen. Um, what's the material? Uh, so it's plastic, okay. uh, you know, on on the outside, that sort of protective layer that keeps you from from going into the into this the display itself. But the the you know the actual technology underneath of that is still uh, LED technology. The the it's very similar, but not exactly the same as the stuff that your current phone is made of and your television and and a lot of things like that. So do you like this? I think as an idea, it's really cool. I think it's very funny that uh, the the you know kind of smartphone industry has. Uh, without saying it out loud, acknowledge that uh, our phones are just too big for some people. Uh, and, and the solution is to make it so that they are sometimes smaller than when you actually need to do something like watch a movie or, or uh, you know, um, a video chat with someone or something like that. Okay. So this is well into the future or is this going to be something that we can choose? So, this is something that we are more likely to see, um, not this coming generation, but there there will likely be a phone um, within the next two years that is available to buy that has, uh, you know, kind of that version of that technology inside of it. Um, Motorola is currently um, a brand marker that's owned by a, a, a financial firm called Bullet. Um, and they've released several phones under the Motorola brand uh, this year, including ones that have uh, satellite, you know, technology built into them. Um, so it's clearly a company that's investing in in kind of the the next generation of uh, of technologies. So it's possible that within the next two years, we'll see a version of that 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 can be bought. I mean, do you see this happening with computer screens and everything? Yeah, so this is not the first time we've seen a rollable, you know, prototype and laptops were one of the first places that it was available. You can imagine someone having a smaller frame laptop and then they sit uh, somewhere where they have the ability to kind of stretch out a little bit. And so the screen kind of rolls out from the sides and you suddenly have more, you know, kind of screen real estate to work with. And the same goes for tablets. You know, it, tablets are um, a pretty great form factor for tossing in your bag and, and kind of going uh, somewhere. But if you want to do more than you know, one or two things at a time that that those screens are typically not big enough to to do that. So you can see it, you know, um, a version of that where it kind of rolls up and, and gives you more space to do things could be useful. Hmm. Okay, Pokemon has a new idea. <laughs> this is fascinating. A new Pokemon game that allows you to catch Pokemon depending on how long you sleep. How does it work? Have you played it? I have not played it because it requires a piece of hardware that's not quite available yet. Okay. Um, but this is something... Uh, that, um, you know, the the Pokemon company has been working on a whole bunch of different ways to, to kind of keep you engaged, either, you know, playing the game or uh, or working with other people who play the game, um, you know, in across so many different devices. You know, the every year we get a new Pokemon game that comes for game consoles and, and it always does really well. 
Um, but there's there's not been another moment that was quite like the release of Pokemon Go uh, a, a while ago that really kind of captured uh, the attention of so many different people. Um, and even then, when, you know, uh, pandemic days happened, it, it wasn't safe to go out into a lot of places and play that game. So it was kind of difficult to keep people, you know, kind of engaged and, and doing things. Um, so the the solution, one of the solutions that has been come up with is to is to make sleeping part of the game. Uh, and and by doing that, they have they are uh, very soon going to be releasing an app called Pokemon Sleep, uh, and it is uh, pretty much as it's described. It is a sleep tracker uh, that connects to an application. You basically put the sleep tracker um, by your pillow, uh, and the motion that you generate at night will will be translated into how restful your sleep was. And depending on how restful your sleep was, is the rewards that you get in the game uh, in in order to you know kind of progress further. Oh, so people who struggles with sleep are kind of getting shafted here. Well, but you're also getting that information to let you know just where you're struggling with sleep, which could be beneficial for communicating with your doctor or, you know, uh, making some sleep recommendations uh, for things that you can do in order to, to, you know, get a more restful sleep. But yes, if you go into this already knowing that you don't sleep well, um, you're you're at a disadvantage versus someone who can disappear for 10 hours and and, you know. <laughs> not have any problems gosh um privacy issues no yes yeah so i mean this is um you know, this is using a lot of the same technology that's been available for uh the pokemon go platform for a while now so a lot of that stuff has been you know sort of you know battle tested as far as how much uh data is shared nintendo as a company as, as well as the the group that owns the pokemon company um they're they're usually pretty great about making sure that uh you know data is as uh as you know, family and child appropriate as possible. So as it's not, you know, allowing you to communicate with other people and, um, and, and that sort of thing, but you are sharing your health information with Nintendo at this point, you know, that is, that is essentially what's happening, uh, with that information. So that, you know, the, I'm, I'm sure that we'll learn more about what exactly the privacy settings are here, but at, you know, on some level, you are giving some of this information to that company. Is this for kids and grownups or, Whatever. This is definitely more adult oriented because okay. it really does require you to kind of have your own phone and, and your own sleep accessory. And um, but it's also I'm, I'm also really curious to see what the accuracy of this is um, a really common issue with sleep trackers uh, is that if you share a bed with someone and that person moves that the sleep tracker usually can't tell the difference between you and that other person. Hmm. So you could have uh, a partner in bed with you who has just a really fitful night of sleep, but it's going to reflect poorly on your uh, sleep tracker, even if you got a great night of sleep, um, you know, so, so seeing what, you know, kind of accuracy is going to come from this, uh, is, is interesting. Um, but, uh, but, you know, for, for the most part, I think that this is, you know, young adults, uh, is, is, you know, kind of the, the general orientation here. And so what, what do you get? I mean, you get, what do you get for sleeping like a good person and, it's going to vary um, and, and it's going to be a big part that, you know, connects to the uh, the kind of Pokemon Go uh, ecosystem where it can be, you know, uh, different things that you have earned for um, for being able to play the game different, um, you know, there if you've ever seen anybody play this game, you know, that like every month there's something different going on. So mm -hmm. they will add, you know, they'll, they'll kind of mix it up for this. Um, and then everyone will have access to uh, an alarm clock that is built into the app. Um, that will allow Pikachu to wake you up. So you'll have a very <laughs> special alarm clock. Uh, I have not heard it yet, 
Um, but that is, uh, you'll, you'll get a, a thing for recommending sleep. You can set an alarm and, and you can control things like volume and stuff like that all within the app. Um, are you going to get this? I'm definitely going to try it because I really want to know how accurate the sleep tracker is. I don't require Pikachu to be my alarm clock. I have a pretty solid alarm clock by my bed as it is. Um, but, uh, but I am curious to see how well this works. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about the AI chatbots. Um, they are all the big deal now with ChatGBT, revolutionizing at least public awareness of AI or where it stands right now. But they're coming to places where you might not have expected them before. What's the deal? Yeah, so you know we're we're in a really interesting period when it comes to things that are you know kind of artificial intelligence um, that that are rather that are called artificial intelligence um, when really they're kind of versions of things that have already existed. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, this uh, a lot of the technology that we've seen in the last couple of months would be referred to as machine learning algorithms. That's not exactly a very attractive name, whereas AI is this kind of quick thing that can be uh, attached to to a lot of the same technology. Um, the underlying bits are really not appreciably different in a lot of cases. And that's what we're seeing here with Snapchat. Um, Snapchat has uh, integrated what it's calling artificial intelligence into its platform uh, using uh, a, a basically a, a chat system called My AI uh, that will offer suggestions for uh, better uh, communication and photography and, and, you know, kind of generally making the app a little easier to use. Um, as well as, uh, you know, kind of plugins for other platforms that are probably aimed at making Snapchat money. Um, for example, Snapchat Plus subscribers will be able to ask their chat AI for birthday gift ideas for mm -hmm. friends. Um, and that kind of thing usually involves an affiliate link for, you know, one of the companies involved there to, to make a little extra money. Um, so a lot of it is, is, you know, for someone who uses Snapchat as kind of their primary communication platform, it gains more... Uh, you know, features for kind of helping you organize your day, basically. And something that Snapchat can monetize. And almost assuredly something that Snapchat can monetize. Um, I guess, again, it's a, I guess it's a question I ask, it seems like all the time now, besides what, what does it cost? What about privacy? So Snapchat's uh, had kind of a mixed history when it comes to privacy. And right. uh, as far as AI goes, um, you know, the last couple of weeks have been really, fascinating for unveiling, uh, you know, the the different attitudes, I guess I will call it, that uh, some of these chat systems have had. Uh, Snapchat has made promises that, uh, you know, that there are, um, you know, kind of a playful tone to, to this service. And uh, they promise that it can't be tricked into saying uh, things that it shouldn't be saying, um, which uh, for the internet is really just a way to challenge exactly that thing to happen. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely, um, uh, it is definitely something worth keeping an eye on and, and Snapchat's relationship with privacy in the past has been pretty questionable. So, well, Russell Holly, thanks for your time today. As always, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Russell Holly is managing editor for commerce at CNET. That's it for tech Tuesday today. You've been listening to all sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR news. Oh,